you know, this happened over 40 years ago. I always say to women who lose their mothers that it's something you never, ever get over. And the effect on you at any age is very profound. That's Elvis Presley. Those were the final words that Wendy remembers before her mother dropped to the floor. Her mother was uh, showing her and her brother a picture of Elvis Presley on a magazine. And for years, she would think that Elvis and mum died the same year. This is Conversations with Earl Grey. Welcome to another episode. Hey friends, I'm Sam and welcome to another season of Conversations with Earl Grey. Conversations with Earl Grey is about everyday people in their everyday lives and just hearing the beauty in the ordinary. So that I can sing. Ready? (laughs) Three, two, one. No, 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 no. Sorry. One clap. This week I talked to my friend Wendy about lockdown and also her experience of having lost her mother at the age of seven. Friends, this episode is a little bit heavy and so if it triggers anything please reach out to someone or call lifeline at 13 11 14 and a huge thank you to my new executive producer brendan zoo hey friends welcome back to another episode of conversations with earl gray where i get to have a cup of tea uh we've now unfortunately Uh, I can't have these interviews uh, in person at the moment because we're in a lockdown in Sydney, Uh, but I have the pleasure of introducing my friend, uh, Wendy, uh, who is a proud, oh, well, let's just step back (laughs) because I don't want to say proud mother of Zeph because you have other children. I want to introduce you to my friend, Wendy, uh, who I know, not only because we go to church together, uh, but because she owns Zeph, which is a beautiful uh, dog that I often have sleepovers with. Hey, Wendy, how are you going? <laughs> I'm good, thanks, Sam. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Wendy. Oh, what is there to say? Well, I'm... Um... 51. I live in near the city, which is very exciting for me to say because um, I'm sorry, the dog is is now (laughs) bothering me. We're in lockdown at the moment. What gets you ticking? Well, I actually secretly, not so secretly now, love lockdown. I, I just think it's a time to just relax and not for me, it takes all the burden that I put on myself of um, making sure people 
um, are feeling connected and making sure that people aren't feeling lonely, I seem to have taken on this personal uh, job at making people not feel lonely. But it is it is quite a burden <laughs> to be constantly, you know, I'm constantly thinking of other people and, you know, how are they feeling and I should get in touch with them. When I'm a little bit of an introvert, everybody thinks I'm this major extrovert because I'm always organising stuff. Yes, yes. So it's just assumed that I'm this huge extrovert, but I'm actually not. Suppose I'm what you'd call an ambivert. I'm a bit in the middle. I can, I certainly enjoy people's company, uh, but I find it tiring. And so lockdown for me is just this really, really great excuse to do to be a bit of a recluse, I guess, and not and just mm. to garden, which is yes. very pleasing yes. to me. Um, you've got an almond tree. You've got several almond trees. Yeah. You've got chili bushes and those beehives at the back, yeah, native beehives. We have a native beehive. We got that about three years ago. There's a really lovely lady who yeah. is in, she's a horticulturist and an, um, an arborist and, she, and a beekeeper. I can't remember the word for a beekeeper. Anyway, she um, she has she lives in Surrey Hills and she has a number of European beehives and native beehives. Oh, and wow. she's fabulous. She comes out and she picks the spot where they'll best thrive and she um, installs the hive for you. Although I've got to say they're very sad at the moment. They native bees only come out at 18 degrees. Mm. It, it hasn't been 18 degrees for a few weeks now. So the poor little bees are trapped inside, and they're probably all busting to go to the toilet because they don't go to the toilet in the hive. They no, yeah, they, that's they right. Do, they're very tidy. They do their business outside the hive. Or so they then they roll it up into little things and throw they it out. Do. Yes. And they, they peg it over the balcony. So you see them all come, they poke their little heads out of the ho- ho- hole in the hive and, and pop their um, their spring cleaning, throw it over the, the front veranda of the hive. And there's all these little black dots that all land on the plants down below, which is all their waste, they're all their garbage going out. But the poor little things there, you can see them if you look really close inside the hole, their little faces are peering out. And they're, they're, it's like they're putting their little arms out to see whether it's 18 degrees, which it's not. So we haven't seen much of them at the moment. But as soon as it gets to 18 or a little bit more, there will be a bee party and there'll be bees everywhere. So I don't know. I, I'm just picking a connection here that it seems Wendy Porter is kind of like a native bee. Um, there are times that she really wants to be in her home and um, secluded, but then she's also peering out and wanting to help and be busy. Um, <laughs> Good analogy. Yes, that's where does, very true. Where does that come from, do you reckon? I don't know. I'm not sure why. Um, I don't know why, why any of us are like what we are. I don't know whether it's in part because... Um, when I, was a re- when I was really little, I was, I was six years old, I was turning seven um, in a week's time, uh, my mother quite unexpectedly died suddenly. And I had a brother and a sister, older sister and a younger brother. So my, my younger brother was only three at the time. He doesn't remember it really at all and doesn't remember her. Um, my dad, who had um, been an only child, I mean, that's a whole other story in, in itself. He was an only, thought he was an only child, and um, he had been doted on by his mother for the first 30 years of his life that he lived at home. 
uh, and I mean, you know, had to sort of everything done for him. So he didn't even know how to boil an egg, really. And then he married my mum, who back in the 60s, as a woman, when you married, you resigned immediately from your job. Uh, she, was, um, she was a nurse at the time. Uh, quite, you know, she'd worked her way up the ranks in nursing, so she would have only been in her late 20s, yet she immediately resigned when she got married. Not because she, was, she wasn't even pregnant, I don't think, at that stage, she, she, but she gave up her job. Mm. Um, and she looked after Dad. So she was there being the homemaker and looking after Dad. So um, when she died suddenly, uh, my dad was left with three little kids to look after. Now, thankfully, he was well supported by the church that we went to. Uh, the, people, the women at that church, primarily, looked after us and did lots of things for us. They bought us clothes, but they did a lot of making meals for us, uh, which we're very grateful for, because my dad is not a good cook at all, hardly surprising, because he, he'd never had to do any cooking for himself. And I should point out, he does like his meat, um, well done and I mean really well done so as as a little teeny kid with little teeny kid teeth trying to eat a steak was was just horrific it was I couldn't see how anybody ever would want to eat steak it was the most revolting thing I I, I think I was in my 20s before I discovered that actually steak was a thing of joy and um and it wasn't eating a tough rubber thong it was actually quite good but um anyway getting back to food my this lovely church family uh brought us lots of meals in fact they I didn't find this out until just in the last few years but apparently they provided meals for us for over two years wow it wasn't just a wow you know the mum has died let's make meals for a week or two um we're talking two years worth of meals so pretty pretty spectacular but I think I became um I think I became a little bit shy after that I think I became a bit um I became very independent felt like I didn't have anyone who could sort of help me with anything or who I could go to about stuff dad was clearly very busy and very stressed. Um, I didn't, didn't realise till much later on as an adult just how stressed my father was over this whole experience. Um, yeah, so I just became very independent. When my dad remarried um, five years later, uh, he married a lovely Christian woman who had four kids and we all shifted in together. So I felt very, I suddenly became part of this big crowd of people who I didn't really know that well. Um, and that just forced me more into just wanting to hide away a bit. I just needed my space. I felt very, um, it was all a bit much for me, all these relationships around me and, and having to get on with all these people. Um, I just found all those relationships very, very difficult and very tiring all the time. So I spent a lot of time in my teenager room, um, locked away listening to music and just spending time with myself. And I became very, very comfortable with my own company and I quite enjoyed it. And I think that's just carried through. But at the same time, you're, you've, you've, you've moved away from that now in a... Yep still wanting yeah yeah what 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 was that ch- change was it was it seeing the love of 
the meals given by yeah, church? I think or... that certainly was part of it. I think seeing how, um, you know, I may have been quite happy being on my own, but I think I recognised that others weren't and that people were on their own and weren't happy about that and they was they were sad about it and they were lonely and um, I think it's really important that we all look out for people and learn to recognise the signs that people are struggling in some way or are alone and want company and want to be part of things. to include them in things they might not be as um, you know straight up as I am at asking people over or suggesting to do things people some people are a bit quieter they don't they don't want to suggest it they're probably scared that people will say no um, but they still want so it. I think they do want it yeah. they do want to have relationship with people and they they may not want to do it all the time but there's a number of people I've met through life now in church and other areas who have said to me, you know, we're so grateful, so grateful that you invited me to that. I, that really was really special to me, and I, that was really important. I felt, you know, part of things, part of the part of our community by doing that. So that spurs me on. I think it's a good thing to do. Yeah, I just just picking up that bit before where you said you you in as your teenager you felt very much at home by yourself. Because um, there's there's a difference between feeling alone and feeling yeah. lonely. Yes, um, definitely. And I don't know, I think a, a lot of us, I'm just reading a book at the moment about um, the need for us to be able to sit in our aloneness because only by being comfortable with ourselves can we start giving to others. Does that resound with you? Is that is that what you went through? Yeah, I think probably something like that. I think I learned that um, I think you have to be able to be comfortable with yourself. You have to learn how to unwind and to spend time. I guess it's kind of like what some people will call meditation. And I, I know as soon as you say the word meditation, you think of, you know, monks sitting around going om and, do, and, having <laughs> being, and being mindless. I don't think meditation is about wisdom through mindlessness I think it's wisdom through mindfulness and you when you're often alone and um, just spending time with yourself I know for me I do a lot of thinking then I think about all sorts of stuff and I think through um, situations I think through problems I think through all sorts of things and and resolve lots of things myself just by being mindful of what's around me and it's a really helpful time. So I think it's I think it's a good thing to learn to be able to do that because it makes you also better at listening to others. If you can sit and just be with your own with silence and listening to your own thoughts, it's a good way to learn how to listen to other people. What do you mean what do you mean by that? Is it is it because if we're not if we're not secure in being with ourselves in our conversations with others, we might just be wanting to hear for for our sake instead of the other person's sake. Is that what you're trying to say? I guess so. Yeah, something like that. Or I think we, if you're too um, busy wanting to 
you know, tell people all about what's going on, you know, talk too much about stuff that's going on and not just, you know, do what you do when you're on your own, which is where you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily talking to yourself, you're just listening to your thoughts. Um, that translates well to a conversation, to being with another person because you can sit and listen to their thoughts and not just fill the space with um, mindless chatter and talking and talking about yourself all the time, I suppose. Mm. I just want to go back to a little bit about your uh, mother's passing to seven-year-old Wendy. How, how did that impact seven-year-old Wendy? Yeah, far more profoundly, I think, than I realised at the time. Um, I remember my father, you know, my father came in. We, we knew, I mean, she'd collapsed on the floor. I was there with her when wow. she died. I didn't know that she had died. I thought she was um, playing a game at first. And my wow, little brother okay. thought, she was, thought she was playing a game. But then I realised that actually she wasn't moving. Um, and I said to my little brother, look, I think, I think there's actually something wrong. Now, in these old houses that we used to live in, uh, there were these vents up in the roof. And my dad was up in the ceiling, do, up in the roof, doing some work up there. And he heard me say to my little brother, I think something's wrong. I'm going to go get daddy. So, but he was halfway down the ladder. But when I got to him and he came in and so we knew that... We knew something very bad had happened because an ambulance came. Well, that was all terribly exciting, the ambulance arriving for seven-year-old Wendy. Mm. Um, and we were scurried off into a bedroom and so that we, you know, weren't there when, when she was being worked on by the ambulance crew. Um, and they, they took her away and we got shuffled off to a neighbour's house whilst my dad had said he was going to the hospital with her. Um, I found out many years later that he didn't actually go to the hospital. He knew that she had died. Okay. Yeah, and he just... He stayed at home on his own. And then he waited to, to come and get us. And we didn't know what had happened. He told us when we got home... <laughs> Do you want to have a break? No, it's okay. I think you can see that. You know, this happened over 40 years ago. Mm. I always say to women who lose their mothers that it's something you never, ever get over. And the effect on you at any age is very profound so in answer to your question yes I think I was profoundly affected by losing her wasn't just the the death the immediate death that we had to deal with in the 70s things were not handled well at all with children you were basically 
not told a lot of what was going on and you were kept away from things like the funeral. So we, my brother, my sister and I didn't even go to her funeral. Uh, it was stiff upper lip stuff mm. back then. You you didn't talk about it and, um, yeah, you certainly didn't take kids to funerals or so my dad seemed to think. I realise now that that, as an adult, that that was just probably the huge, the biggest of the many mistakes that were made around losing our mother, uh, not going to the funeral. So I didn't see a single person cry for her. And I think that's when I stopped crying. And it was, I, I, I just don't think I cried for a really long time. And, um, yeah, I would if I felt myself feeling sad about something, and I'm I'm quite an empathetic person, so lots of things make me want to cry. Um, but I would stop myself, and I think it's I didn't I, I'd always not understood why I was like that, and why I had trouble showing the emotion of sadness, and I think it was because it was we were. Pr- all that was kept from us as kids. We weren't able to grieve appropriately. Um, the result for me was that as a, 20, well, I think I was 22, and I had a fairly significant um, bout of depression. I'd got incredibly sick to the with the depression. I didn't know what it was that was going on with me. I just knew that something was really wrong when I was out trying to hang clothes on the line one day. I had two little kids by this stage at 22 um, and I couldn't get the message from my brain to my hand to get the peg to go on the line. It was so the depression had got so severe without and so untreated and I didn't even know what was going on with me that I couldn't, it started to affect me physically. I couldn't get messages from my brain to my hands to make things happen and I stood there out at the clothesline just helplessly not even able to put clothes on the line and yeah I had a had quite a major breakdown at that point and rang my dad and my stepmom who came and got the kids and took me to the doctor which is probably the wisest <laughs> decision they'd, they'd ever made for me um, they took me to the doctor and the doctor realised what it was pretty quickly. Now, he put it down to being postnatal depression, but you know, I, I realised now that it was... I was in a terrible marriage. Um, just a really unhelpful, horrible marriage I was in. Um, and it was that that was causing me all this depression and unresolved um, working through my mother's death, basically. I just had never, ever um, worked through it or or even really talked about it much. And I'd been quite stoic about it all up to that point. It was, it was from that point onwards that, um, yeah, I stopped being able to talk about her. I remember standing in the room before I rang my dad thinking, I just, I want my mum. It's the only person I wanted. And she wasn't there. And that was, that was quite a shocking moment for me to realise that after all those years, um, you know, by this stage she'd been gone for, what's my maths like, you know, 15 years, but I 
desperately needed her and she wasn't there. Um, so that contributed enormously to this terrible depression that I suffered from. I just want to pause there for listeners. Um, if any of these things that we've talked, I, I didn't expect to go down this this line, um, but if any of this has triggered anything for our listeners, uh, do reach out to Lifeline at 13 11 14 or go to Beyond Blue or chat with someone uh, who you can debrief with. You're listening to Conversations with Earl Grey this week with Wendy Porter about life, death, grief and loss. We'll be back in just a moment. What did mum mean for you? Well, it was a very complex, it was very complicated for me because I'd had, um, we called her mummy at the time that she died. So we still refer to her as that. Now as 50 year olds, my siblings that I refer to her as mummy when we talk about her. Um, And because I didn't really get to know her very well at six years old, seven years old, you don't you're not concentrating on learning lots about your parents. You're just living life as a little kid. So there's heaps I um, I don't know about her. So I, I have, yeah, and then I had a stepmother who um, was a really lovely woman, but unfortunately she and I clashed. We just had, um, it was like a personality clash. It wasn't that she was bad or I was bad. Uh, she was in a difficult situation taking over, you know, taking uh, running this household was suddenly that had seven kids in it and um, all those dynamics would have been difficult for her. My dad probably wasn't the easiest person uh, to be married to. They'd met and married very quickly, um, like within about three three to six months or something. I think he was probably a complex person to, um, to be married to and dealing he was obviously with enormous amounts of grief. Um, so I didn't, I didn't have, no, I've never had a great idea of um, what it's like to have a mum. And, and for me, when I, mum, mum doesn't mean a lot to me because I don't think I ever had, I never, I've never experienced a true mother-daughter relationship. Um, it's just something I've missed out on in my life. And um, there's a fabulous book, and I wish I could remember who it's written by, called Motherless Daughters. And I found reading that one day, I found incredibly helpful because I, I just remember reading through thinking, oh, my gosh, that's what I do. That's what I think. That's what I'm like. And it seems like there's actually the effect of losing a mother, certainly in childhood, does have certain effects on a person. Um, so I don't, yeah, when you say what do I think, what does mum mean to me, it's, um, it's got a big question mark next to it. I don't know um, what that means and I know, I mean, I'm a bit better at knowing what it means for me as a mother but even that, I'm, I don't think I'm a particularly great mother um, myself because I don't really, I never really learnt how to be a mother and I didn't have anyone really that I was well I just never had a mother-daughter relationship really so I sort of missed out on that 
does your faith, how does your faith shape this grief, this loss, the, the, the not knowing motherhood? Does it shape it or, yeah? Yeah, I think it does. It certainly helps me to deal with it all. Knowing that um, I'm deeply loved by God is um, a relationship that I've missed out on with my mother parent. I missed out on being deeply loved, you know, experiencing that. I'm sure that I was deeply loved by her, but I never experienced it. Whereas um, experiencing that with God is, um, is a very important and special relationship for me. Does that ever... Because we, 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 we call God Father. Does that ever, you know, and, and you're yearning in a way for for mother, does that ever kind of go, oh, I, I'm, not, I'm not fully loved? I don't know that I ever think that I'm not fully loved. I think um, I certainly feel like I've missed out on something. Um, and I think there's a, there's a hole in that. But I know that one day when I, you know, when I meet God, I believe that when I die, there's, there is something after this and that it's either being with God or not. And I think I won't care about it then. I'm pretty confident that when everyone talks about, oh, heaven's this great, lovely place and it's really nice to be, I think what, make, what will make heaven a really nice place to be uh, is that you just won't remember any of this. You just, this will be gone. It won't matter. It'll be, it'll be gone and forgotten and everything will be so amazing in heaven that oh, this will just seem like absolutely nothing and I guess she will be there so you know she she trusted in in God she trusted that God was real and that that there was life for her after after this life and so I'm, I'm confident that I'll see her there and so I don't feel anymore like she's completely gone and just disappeared. Um, I feel like she's she's gone from here, but she's somewhere else, and I will get to that somewhere else one day, and then I'll see her. And in a way, you having missed out motherhood, won't you won't miss out on it when you see her again? No, that's right. And, and not only will I see her there and have my mother back, but we'll all be in perfect relationship not just with her but with yeah. everyone and that's that's yeah. sort of a bit hard to even get your head around what that'll be like um but yeah that's that's certainly something i'm looking forward to is that that knowledge that i'll i'll see her again i'd always been told that as a yeah. little kid that she's in heaven but it didn't yeah. mean anything to me really um but yeah once i worked out who God was, um, then, yeah, then it changed my perspective on it all and I thought, yeah, I actually am going to see her again. What do you think your mum will say to you when she first sees you? tricky one I guess she'll just hug me I guess yeah yeah I don't think I don't think there's much to be said yeah yeah 
that just, that questions this game, you know, I just thought, what would, um, you know, what would people that I've lost say to me? She'd probably say she was sorry that, you know, that she'd gone and even though it certainly wasn't her fault, she had a... No, yeah, it she, wasn't she her had fault. A, what we now know, a genetic heart condition. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but I think she'd probably be sorry that... Um, she wasn't there for us, and that we that we we didn't have that relationship. Coming back to fifty-one-year-old Wendy, um, how has all this transformed who you are now? Yeah, I certainly think. Because you carry yeah. a lot. That, that's a lot to carry for a seven-year-old. Yeah. That's a lot to process as a 22-year-old. Yeah. I th- um, uh, to the point of not being able to put a peg onto the line. Yeah. I think it's... it's and then, yeah. It's shaped me in a way where I can be of more use to other people. There are people who I speak to who are going through difficult times and... Often I think to myself, okay, I actually have a sense of how this person feels about this because I've, I've been there and I've been through that. I mean, I've just talked today the tip of the iceberg of the stuff that's happened to me in my life. Um, but it does give you the ability to understand and empathise with people and to be able to listen in a way that you can actually understand what it is that they're going through. So, you know, whether it's just listening or, you know, giving advice from the mistakes that I've made in life, um, how not to make those mistakes. Um, Yeah, I think it certainly has shaped, it's very much shaped who I am now. I think I wouldn't be the wife that I am to my husband if I hadn't been through some of the difficult things that I've been through with marriage and so on, I think I wouldn't understand him to be able to to be a good wife to him. And, yeah, understanding what it's like not to have a mum helps me to be a better mum to my children, my who are now grown up, and to my grandkids. You know, I want to be present in their lives and known to them and I want them to have good memories of me and be have good relationship with me. As we're wrapping things up, it's been, um, it's a very, uh, I feel very honoured to be able to sit in this space and to listen to your story. Um, and it, it is a very, I think it is a very sacred moment um, to enter into these spaces of loss and that I can, you know, listeners can't see but we we have heard that loss is something that continues to be carried with us um some days we're okay with it and some days we're not um but it is always there um so thank you so much for being open and raw and sharing your life 
with us. Uh, is there any final things you'd like to say to, yeah, listeners who might be going through similar things? I think talk to someone you trust. Talk to someone who you know is going to actually listen to you and believe you and seek help. And if that means, you know, if, you're, if you know that how you're feeling isn't, um, isn't right, then go to the doctor, go to a GP who you, who you trust. That's a really good first, um, first place to go. And sometimes you'll need medication. And even if you're anti-medication, um, it's, it's a, just a good way to stabilise things until you can get to see someone um, experienced who you can speak to, like a psychologist or, or um, a counsellor or someone like that. But don't be, um, yeah, don't be funny about taking tablets. Just <laughs> if you need something. Because Zeph takes Zeph, tablets. That's exactly right. Zeph's on Prozac. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I must say, it's the best decision we ever made and I think he's pretty happy about it too. So <laughs> I didn't tell you the other time. Well, he was sleeping over the other week and um, he didn't eat a whole one with his food and I was like mate tomorrow you're gonna be horrible so I said sit and then I grabbed his snout and I shoved it in there and then I held his snout and he was like I was like no you've got to swallow it after after a couple of seconds of um, battling he just went and it came out again he's a bugger this would be much easier for you if you just swallow this tablet. That's right. Unbeknownst to him, he's far better on Prozac than not on Prozac. Yes. Oh, dear. Anyway, um, well, thank you so much for your time, Wendy. No worries. And uh, it's, been, it's been wonderful chatting with you. It's been wonderful sharing a cup of tea uh, with you, with our imaginary cup of teas. And um, listeners, look forward to listening to Zeph and Wendy on our upcoming podcast in a couple of weeks time a couple of months time to all the dogs i've ever loved all right have a good afternoon and um i will see you next week on conversations with earl gray